So I'm writing a novel. Is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. Last time I spoke with you about Sword and Planet, which is either a parallel or sub-genre of sword and sorcery, depending on your opinion and whether or not Mars is in retrograde. Not that literature and opinions are subjective or anything. An important part of that discussion was talking about my research into Sword and Planet. Lo and behold, what am I talking about today? Research. Which, if I'm correct, is the process where you read enough things and you then have all of the answers and are smart and will do the thing perfectly. Yes, that's research. I really enjoy research. I mean, for starters, let's be real, it's very low stakes. Nobody's going to yell at you. You're just quietly reading and learning things. I like learning, nerd. Research tends to be described in terms of a very active mode, like, you know, you go online and you Google the thing, you go to the library, you look up a book on the thing, you talk to an expert on the thing, and so on and so forth. But I also think there is great value to what I call, and I'm sure others do too, passive research. And I'm going to get into that as well, but let's start with a more familiar one, active research. When do you begin doing it? Whenever it feels right for you. But I think, you know, generally speaking, research is an early stage. Sometimes you're doing research for the project and you don't even realize it because it's while reading some book about something that you come across an idea that sparks a story idea. Oh, hey, cool. I've already been reading about scuba diving and now I've just read the scuba diving fact that makes me want to write about Oliver Brackenbury, king of the scuba divers. So maybe then you're like, all right, I want to write that story, but I now I got to read and listen to and watch everything I can find about scuba diving. And then maybe as you're doing that, you get the six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing going on where you're like, oh, well, scuba diving connects to boats, which connects to manufacturing of boats, which connects to the military industrial complex, which connects to Eisenhower, which connects to scuba diving that Eisenhower once did on vacation. Oh, my God, it's all connected. Right. But how much of all that do you really need for your story? And how do you know what you need for your story, particularly when it's really early on? Well, as ever, I can't tell you definitively, but I can tell you what I've done and what works for me. I find early on it can be tempting to fly off in all kinds of directions, but it's good to just stay as focused as you can to start. And if you think of things or spot things that are like, oh, this could be handy, have like a bucket to put those things in. You know, I have in my notebooks usually a section literally just called stray thoughts. And so if I'm like, oh, what if my scuba diving novel needs a thing about how to clean a broadsword? I will make that note in there, just like the one sentence thought I had, and then be like, okay, that's taken care of. I will not lose that thought because I wrote it here. Good. It's safe back to the scuba diving or whatever the main subject is. I also find it good to remember that you're not studying for a test. You're not trying to just get everything and cram it in your head and keep it all there somehow and then get an A plus and everybody claps and you win. That said, certain kinds of stories do demand more verisimilitude than others or so it seems to me. I'm reminded of an anecdote from when uh, H.P. Lovecraft 
was having a chat by letter, I think, with Fritz Leiber, the author of my beloved Fafford and Grey Master stories. This was in the very beginning when Leiber was thinking about writing about a city of thieves and a couple of guys. And at this point, he was thinking about setting this in ancient Alexandria. But Lovecraft advised him, hey, man, I might be paraphrasing here. Hey, man, dude, Leiber, uh, what if you don't set it in Alexandria? What if you just make up your own funky city and just have Alexandria in the back of your mind while you do it? That way, the history nerds won't pull your story apart because you put the wrong kind of sandal on the dowager or whatever. And Liber took that advice. I think it worked out okay for him. I certainly, when writing Untitled Sword and Sorcery novel, have decided to look to history for inspiration, occasionally pull details from it and just plunk them down in the story or tweak them and plunk them down. But yeah, it's definitely not taking place on Earth or... If I, it is, maybe it's going to be the Conan trick of setting it in an imagined far, far, far past, you know, pre anything in our history books about man, uh, an age of man, which has more or less been erased by the forces of history and whatnot. But just because I'm not setting this on Earth in a historical period doesn't mean I don't want to be careful about certain things with my Untitled Sword and Sorcery novel. I mean, for starters, whether or not it's on Earth, Probably I'm going to want to accurately describe certain things like how, you know, armor is made or other blacksmithing stuff. Since my character is someone who had a blacksmith for a mother and was raised somewhat to take on that trade. I may be on this other planet. Iron has a different melting temperature or whatever, but that's not interesting. So, you know what? Let's provide some realistic, true to life stuff. To help ground the story, which in turn is a kind of currency that allows me to buy the big, fantastic, crazy stuff that I want to put in the story, right? And even for the big, fantastic, crazy stuff, um, maybe this is more of a like a checking your work thing than a research thing, but it's still looking stuff up. I think it's worth having a think about your weird names for creatures and even some of the concepts within those creatures or magic or anything else that's like beyond the norm. I'm thinking right now of that guy, uh, John Boyne, who accidentally included like Zelda video game monsters in his novel, basically saying, you know, details from a careless Google search wound up in there. The uh, tweet that was shared by at Dana Schwartz with three sets at the end was like her highlighting the fact that there was this thing about dyes and, and, and ingredients being used to make something, including the red Lizalfos and four Hylian shrooms. Hylia being like the big kingdom in Zelda. I'm not a Zelda expert, but I have a lot of sympathy for that because years ago I wrote a treatment, like a big heavy duty outline for a horror movie. It was set in modern day. It had a fantastic element in the form of a cult that was trying to summon something, but ultimately like there were no supernatural elements. They just thought, you know, the cultists just thought they could bring them into life. Anyway, the point isn't the story. The point is my name for the cultists was the Hylians. And I was like, yes, this is an original word I have come up with myself. I am a genius. And then I ran it by a buddy who just you know, rightly roasted me for <laughs> including a, a well-known name from an incredibly popular video game franchise and calling it like my own idea. And it was an innocent thing. Like if I've been, uh, you know, stealing it, I would own up to it. And I mean, that's stealing is a whole nother subject. But no, man, I just it just bubbled up out of me, which brings me to a concept that I think is important. I haven't heard it talked about much since I saw it bubble around a few years ago, but I still think it's a neat idea. The concept 
of an information diet, which kind of segues us from active to passive research or maybe a fuzzy zone between the two. Now, I don't mean diet as in dieting, as in trying to lose or reduce or something. I have seen it used in that context of, you know, like, oh, I've been sucking on the fire hose of information from the internet too much and I feel overwhelmed. I got to cut down. Like, okay, sure. That's another thing. I'm talking about diet as in your diet, as in what you put in you and what it gives you. And, you know, does is it good for you? Is it bad for you? And I suppose that makes this kissing cousins with the whole idea we saw a lot of people get mad about years ago. Uh, with, you know, video games, are they making our kids murderers, you know, or any number of other concerns about like, say, sex and violence in various media can consuming stuff, you know, make you into a bad person. I think that's mostly a nonsense idea. People have to be primed for certain things and they probably would do something terrible anyway. But for the purposes of what we're talking about here with research and running a novel, it's like if you only read garbage, are you only going to be able to create garbage? Is it a garbage in, garbage out situation? What is garbage? What is high and low art? Huge questions. But to stay focused on the topic at hand, I think it is fair to say that if your diet is composed exclusively of only works in the one genre, uh, presumably the one that you want to write, you're at a loss. Uh, it's pretty common advice in writing to read broadly. You never know what you're going to pick up. I remember hearing someone say how reading a lot of Westerns, for example, helped them get a better idea of how to write horses in their sword and sorcery stories. A slightly less obvious piece of advice that I don't see as often and that I would certainly endorse is it's good to ask yourself once in a while, why am I reading this? Why am I following this person on Twitter? Why am I listening to this podcast? In this case, because it's great and you love it and you should never stop following it. So yeah, <laughs> question yourself now and again about what it is you're taking in because everything that goes into you can end up coming back out into your writing, which is how we get cliches about, you know, living is research for my writing, you know, because yeah, it's true. Anything you do can wind up in your writing. But in terms of focused research, again, this idea of an information diet, if you're consuming narrowly, then the information you'll have to draw on for your writing will be narrow, maybe deep, but narrow. I find a way to find a happy balance between consuming only one thing that you're writing about and that one genre, maybe even just one or two authors and getting way too narrow. And the other thing, which is to just diffuse yourself in all directions, is to look to passive research and just have that be a regular part of your life. And to and within that, look to your interests and occasionally try and take recommendations from people of, for things that you might not have been drawn to necessarily. And so what's the passive research? Well, you know, that's reading articles online in general, just, you know, following what's nifty, what somebody recommends. Certainly for me, podcasts have been a big part of that. And then just writing stuff down, even if you don't have a story for it. I actually have been experimenting for a couple of years now with keeping a notebook where it's just my nonfiction general research notebook. And when I get a book from the library on a subject that I don't have an immediate use for, but I think this has got some neat stuff, I will write and the act of writing helps put it in my head. I will write uh, bits and pieces from that book into my notebook, and I have an index for it, and la-di-da, look and behold, as I record this, I am looking at designing my City of Thieves type thing for uh, that story in the middle of the uh, part of the novel, and I remembered in that notebook, I had a bunch of excerpts from a book called Imaginary Cities by Darren Anderson, and you can kind of guess what it's about, cities in fiction, designing them and all that good stuff. And I didn't need to design a city or anything when I read it, but I thought, you know, I write, this might come in handy down the line, and I'm interested. And I guess that's the broad and cliche sounding but true advice here, which is follow your interests and be willing to go outside them periodically. 
sometimes I do kind of just make myself a little New Year's resolution. Like this year, I vowed to try and read more sci-fi and fantasy by non-Western authors. And boy, am I glad I'm doing that in terms of both creativity, writing, etc., but also just my life. <laughs> uh, it is good for me in a way that I suppose is comparable, metaphorically speaking, to cutting out red meat. So yeah, passive research, right? Just reading things without knowing what you're going to use them for, per se, listening to things in the morning while you're doing your dishes or whatever. That's my routine. Uh, and just having somewhere to put stuff if you spot it and go, oh, this could be good somewhere later, like a stray thought section in a project novel, let's say, or a big Word file. I have a 85-page Word file of just stuff all over the world in terms of subject matter, but unified under a specific project. And even if that project doesn't come to fruition, I've got all that stuff there I can go sift through later for other things. And yes, there is the classic carry a little notebook in your back pocket. You know, I'm a big fan of the Field Notes series, that size and shape of notebook. Though I must confess, I don't do it as much as I used to because I can email myself stuff to then write down at home in the master notebook. Uh, of course, now that we live in this magical world of phones and have done for some time. Speaking of which... How do you organize your stuff? Do you do it on paper? Do you do it on the computer? Do you do it in a mix of the two? Well, you're probably going to do it in a mix of the two. I find that the computer is great for when I just want to have links to a whole mess of articles when there's like a real volume of research that I need to put aside and also if I'm finding it online. But it is kind of out of sight, out of mind. I mean, I've had a free Evernote account for years and it is handy, but... It's I don't know how much of it I come back to. There's a few files that are like little record keeping guys unto themselves that I come back to a lot. Like I like to keep track of what I've read in a year, be outside of Goodreads in case Goodreads folds or something. But if I'm being real with you, I mostly don't look at it. What I mostly look at are things I write down by hand in either my general notebook I mentioned or in specific project notebooks or even those pocket notebooks that I've semi-abandoned, semi because I know I will come back to those and read through them and it's kind of relaxing and I can do it when I've had a long day of working on other stuff on screens. I personally find I overdose on screens and I don't like how it feels. Another reason to put things on paper because you can always look at things on paper. You're not going to be like, oh, I'm sick of paper. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but unlikely. As with so much in any kind of project, I think it's really important to reduce friction and putting things on paper honestly reduces friction even though it's kind of more effort because that way like like I say reading it is for me easier than reading lots of stuff on screens but also the act of writing it down by hand will drill it into your head even if you forget every word that you wrote you might at least remember I wrote a thing about um, cities there was a book imaginary cities and then you go back to the paper and you find it right Another thing I do, especially when it comes to passive research, like just, you know, tripping over things that sound nifty, but can I stop right now to write them down or make a note or email myself or whatever? You know, I try to organize my time as well as the research itself, which is to say, I like I'm a big fan of the snooze function in Gmail. So like a pretty common thing is I'll be scrolling on Twitter or I'll hear something on a podcast, or I'll see something in a book. And I could stop what I'm doing to get to the thing, or maybe I can't. But even if I can, it's like, should I? Is that a good use of my time right now? So instead, I'll make a note to myself, or I'll take a photo of the thing, or whatever. I'll make a record, even if it's just like quickly typing into an email, like a few keywords. So I'm like, oh yeah, the thing. And I email it to myself, and I either snooze it to the next Monday, or I schedule it for the Monday. And I take a little 
thing from the page of how my parents have run their business there. My parents are both goldsmiths. And one thing my dad said to me that stuck with me was he said, look, paperwork, you know, the actual like taxes and so on, that can eat up your whole day every day if you let it. So, you know, he had, I think he called it touch once kind of thing. He was like, take it, put it on the desk and then just touch it once on the Monday. Deal with it all on the Monday so you can focus on the actual like making of the jewelry and dealing with clients the rest of the week. Similarly, I try to set aside time on Monday for just cranking through a bunch of emails that past Oliver has sent me <laughs> all kinds of things that he thought were intriguing. And you know what? That waiting till the Monday pays off in a couple of ways, aside from the fact that I just keep the research organizing and filing to one specific part of the week so it doesn't eat up all my writing time, it also causes me to have time to sit back and then reevaluate and be like, is this thing I sent myself really interesting or did it just have a buzzword I liked? Oh, is this thing something I actually have to write down or can I just forget about it? Delete. And so that keeps my research a little more, I guess you could say, pure in terms of quality versus quantity. Quality over quantity is good, I think, for the obvious reason that you have never liked a book in your life that had a lot of bad ideas. <laughs> Because, wow, at least there's so many of them rather than reading one that had just even one really great idea. Also, you are a human being. You have limits. You can only remember so much. I swear to God, one of the biggest battles of writing, in my experience, is simply trying to remember everything, whether it's research or notes you've made about character or rules of grammar or rules of grammar it's okay to break if, uh, or uh, how experienced you have to be to break that rule of grammar. Anyway, you get the point. And since you can only keep so much in your head at any given time, trying to cram everything into your head is a bad idea and you're setting yourself up for disappointment. So what do you need? How do you know what you need? Well, what is your story? What are your characters? What are they up to? And maybe the research can spark an idea for who the characters are and who the, you know, the places are and so on and so forth. It's not always a straight one to two to three step process. Often it can be like a Neuroboros of research sparking story ideas and story ideas sparking a feeling of a need for more research. This gets me to the last thing I want to talk about, which are the risks inherent in research. Getting stuff wrong, obvious, don't need to talk about that. Getting stuff that you think is right, not checking, and then getting pantsed <laughs> when people find out that you put Zelda stuff in your work, for example, covered it. Knowing when to stop. Well, that's a thing that is kind of weird because you never really stop, but also you kind of stop and start and stop and start. What the heck does that mean? Well, it means that the this is why I want to talk about passive and active research. To me, passive research never stops unless you walk around with your fingers and your ears and your eyes closed and going la 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 la. The active research at some point needs to be at least paused so you can actually get on with some frigging outlining and writing. And when does that happen? When you feel comfortable. It's just a gut thing you have to practice. It's just one of those things. There's no, you know, when it's been 12 minutes or five days or three books read. You just do it when you feel comfortable with the idea of progressing forward. And the more things you write, the more you'll know kind of when to measure. Are you comfortable or are you rushing because you're impatient? Which is a problem I have. Or are you hiding in your research and avoiding the anxiety of starting by staying in that comfy, low-stakes environment? See also excessive world-building. <laughs> I would also advise against feeling like you have to use every piece of research or getting really, like, falling really in love with something you researched and then just cramming it unnaturally into the story. This can manifest in many ways, but I tend to think of it as what I like to call Wikipedia mouth, when a character is just like, yeah, okay, so that's cool about how your dad is actually a lizard. Anyway, 
Have you heard this really cool detail about this one guy during the Russian Revolution? I'm going to talk about that for three paragraphs. This can even be annoying when you have a character whose whole thing is that they've got a head full of useless trivia, like the character of Yorick in Brian Vaughn's, uh, Brian K. Vaughn's, pardon me, excellent comic series, Why the Last Man. I love that series. I own it in hardcover, and I had all the floppy editions before then. Maybe I'll give them away or sell them even for a few bucks when the series finally airs. Point being, I love that story. I love that character. I get the point is his head's full of useless trivia, and that's kind of amusingly contrasted with the life-or-death situations that he's in in this post-apocalyptic, all-the-men-are-dead situation. But that doesn't mean that there aren't still, after however many rereads, times where I hit a certain panel in that comic, and I go, oh, Boy, yeah, no, Brian K. Vaughn just read something he thought was really cool. This doesn't serve the story. This doesn't tell me anything about the character. This doesn't serve any purpose whatsoever. And it's true, you don't have to be totally mercenary about every little thing you put in a story. Sometimes it's okay to just chill and enjoy the world, I know. But that's not what is happening, I feel, when a character is just barfing something that the author fell in love with and couldn't see fit to put down to maybe use in another project. Not that I've ever been guilty of that myself. <laughs> the second last thing I'll bring up is something I haven't encountered a heck of a lot, but I did have to think about quite a bit earlier this year while working on a show that involved the north of Canada and the Inuit people, which is redundant, by the way. Inuit means the people. Look at me, remembering my research. Actually, even before early this year, at the very beginning of the project, I had to try and remind myself that I'm researching people to be characters, foreground and background, in this case, a TV series project. But in anything, uh, you want to remember that people are people. They're not just fodder for your story. <laughs> it's worth considering how they might feel about their portrayal. And I don't just mean super obvious stuff like don't be racist, you know, it's uh, there might be stereotypes you're unaware of and that kind of thing. And also a lot of other people have probably done research on them and misrepresented them. And also, you know, maybe you want to talk to some of the actual people instead of just reading books. And if you are just reading books, even make sure you check who's writing those books. Are they of that people, that culture, or is it just 40 white guys in a room nodding? Heck, in my case, with the uh, Northern Canadian sci-fi project in which featured Inuit characters and culture, I discovered that the Inuit are so, I mean, I'm speaking broadly here, but so fed up with how they have been so consistently misrepresented right up to this very minute that I'm talking. Like, this is not a problem of the past. It is a very intense problem of the present, for sure, that there's actually something called doing research in a good way. Uh, which I am no expert in, but I did look into as part of that project. I would recommend anybody who's curious to learn more about, you know, sort of doing indigenous research in a good way, pardon me, it was broader than just Inuit, uh, you check out www.mun.ca, like mun, www.mun.ca slash research. It's a good FAQ. It's a living document constantly updated on doing research on indigenous people. And it is primarily aimed at academic people, but I think journalists and writers of all stripes can benefit from it. Finally, we come to an aspect of research that I am very concerned about when it comes to myself, particularly when it comes to this project, my untitled sword and sorcery novel, reading uncritically. Now, I don't mean what I've already kind of addressed in the sense of like Googling something and going like, yeah, 
Hylian mushrooms, sounds good. And then putting it in your novel and then getting featured in The Guardian. <laughs> I mean, um, the thing where you just feel like, yeah, I should read a lot about this genre. Obviously, I've been re- reading a lot of sword and sorcery. I've, I'm 60 plus books deep at this point in sword and sorcery and general appendix and type stuff. And part of what has gotten me through that onerous sounding task of reading so many books is the fact that I love the genre and I have fond memories from childhood of reading those Conan comics and oh yeah and oh no wait hang on that same fuel that love that can get you going through the project can blind you to certain issues it can also it cannot just blind you to certain issues it can keep you from thinking very hard about what you're reading so you're not actually going to get a heck of a lot out of it you're just kind of running it through yourself like I don't know, something that isn't poop through a goose. I hear that too often. What is it with geese and how they poop anyway? But yeah, I have met a non-zero amount of people who like to write, and they read way more than I do. And I think I read a decent amount. I set a goal of about 40 books a year, just a, a number, you know, to aim for. And I generally read over that, more like sort of 60 to 80, depending. And last year, like last year, I read like 79 books. And I worry I almost read too much. I worry I was so focused on numbies, just pushing up the numbers, you know, cramming all those books through my head, hoping that just sheer osmosis would make me a better sword and sorcery writer. But that's not really how it works. You have to think critically. And I don't just mean being willing to see where the flaws are. I mean being willing to think like, well, how how does this work? Why does this work? And like, I'm very good at thinking about that when it comes to like plot and story and character. What I may have mentioned before in the language and race episode is that I am not always so great at that when it comes to thinking about sentence construction. What are they doing with verbs and punctuation and all that good stuff? It's something I'm trying very hard to get better at. And in fact, as of this recording, I am really looking forward to a writing class I signed up for. Thank you, Patreon people. I was able to pay for that with Patreon funds bless your cotton socks. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please check out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel to support the podcast and the writing of the novel. So yeah, anyway, I used sweet Patreon bucks to pay uh, admittance to a one-day course called The Craft of Heroic Fantasy Fiction Writing taught by Howard Andrew Jones. I'm really looking forward to that, and a big part of that is homework that's been assigned in advance of the class, including analysis, almost entirely analysis of the text, much in the way I want to improve at. And by the time this episode airs, I will be a week past that class. So here's hoping by the time you hear me saying this, I am a better writer than the man who is talking to you right now. Gosh darn him. Okay. (laughs) Research. I could talk about it forever, but that would be bad. Like real research, at some point things have to at least go on pause, as this podcast will, until next week. When I may begin something I've been looking forward to with excitement, but also a little bit of trepidation, which is to spend an episode apiece, probably more for the novella-length one, but yeah, one episode per story that I have outlined of the 17 stories minus Vogue, which I've already discussed, which means I really got to keep up with my writing. And honestly, on a good week, I can get a story outlined. So one week, one episode works out. But sometimes life gets in the way. Maybe it takes me two or three weeks to outline a story. And that could make the flow of episodes slow down, which would be bad, I think. I don't know. Could I do this every other week for a while? Would you yell at me? Would you yell at me? I don't want to get yelled at. So yeah, next week might also be an interview or there just might be more interviews now and again when I need to be able to step back from talking about the writing so I can get more of it done. All right, enough behind the scenes, Oliver. Let's get out of here. I'll see you next week, whatever it's going to be.
So, I'm writing a novel. It features original music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an MP3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine, just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter, look for at so underscore writing, at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on iTunes, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and I'll see you soon.